The ED is a busy, exciting, and at times exhausting place, and it's only getting busier. Hospital emergency departments are often plagued with waits and delays. Overcrowding in EDs contributes to poor care, frustrated patients, increased costs, potential harm, and stress for both patients and staff. But when patients' information and materials flow efficiently through the ED, you can make real improvements to patient safety, clinical effectiveness, and patient and staff satisfaction. That's why IHI is proud to invite you to Perfecting Emergency Department Operations being held this June in Boston at the IHI. This great seminar will teach you how to identify key challenges and the barriers to efficient patient flow and operations and learn the key improvement strategies and methods to tackle those challenges. Practical applications will demonstrate why an efficient ED is so critical to the safety and satisfaction of patients, their families, and your staff. IHI's faculty will present real-world examples and provide actionable strategies and tactics, all developed through our work and learning with emergency departments in the United States and across the globe. Perfecting emergency department operations is ideal for ED leadership, administrators, or the nurses and physicians who work every day in this challenging part of the hospital. We're holding it June 11th through 12th, right here at the IHI in Boston. It's a great opportunity not only to learn how to improve your emergency department, but also to be in Boston when the weather is actually pleasant. Don't miss it. For more information on the seminar and how to enroll, shoot us an email at info at IHI.org or visit IHI.org slash ED operations. Now, here's WIHI. Patients and families have a lot to contribute to the redesign of healthcare, given the opportunity. And there are growing opportunities today, such as serving on patient and family advisory councils, hospital trustee quality committees, and more recently taking part in co-production or co-design initiatives. But if we're serious about inclusion and these new partnerships, Shouldn't the tools and the language of quality improvement, the science of improvement, be shared too? Now, how do you do that? Who's doing that? What's the benefit? We're going to find out on this edition of WIHI. Now, I want to welcome you to WIHI. If it's your first time, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live every other week, and then you can find us on iTunes and on IHI.org. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Until planning this WIHI, I really didn't understand or know the extent to which at least some organizations have committed themselves to teaching improvement skills, not just to their staffs, but to patients, and in some cases, family members too. Now, maybe you're doing something similar at your organization, and if so, I hope you'll let us know using the chat during this hour. All right, let me get right to introductions. I'm going to be brief uh, so we can get right to uh, the substance of our show. Uh, we, I want to first start with Amr Shah. He is a consultant forensic psychiatrist and chief quality officer at East London NHS Foundation Trust, commonly referred to or affectionately referred to as ELFT. Additionally, Dr. Shah is the lead for quality improvement at the Royal College of Psychiatrists and an improvement advisor and faculty member for WIHI. Welcome, Amr. Thanks, Madge. Lovely to be with you. Wonderful. All right. Uh, across town or not too far also, uh, uh, but now we're going to South London. 
I want to introduce three people who have joined together because they do work together. First, we're going to go with Barbara Gray. She is the director of SLAM Partners. That's S-L-A-M Partners. She's the director of SLAM Partners and QI at South London and Maudsley. That's where you get SLAM from. NHS Foundation Trust. She's held this position since the program's inception in 1999. Barbara is in the same office. They're surrounded by the same computer with Gabriel Richards, who's the head of inclusion, recovery, occupational therapy, and allied health professionals also at SLAM. And Gabrielle has worked in mental health most of her working life, and she is a fellow of the Royal College of Occupational Therapists. And finally, uh, to round out the, uh, the trio there, Sarah Davenport. She has been a patient, or sometimes the term service user is used, at SLAM for some time now. She uses two of its specialist services and has experience of inpatient daycare and outpatient services that are offered. And in the past three years, she's attended advisory group meetings, clinical governance executive board meetings, and participated in several quality improvement workshops. Sounds quite intriguing. Sarah has a background in healthcare. And I want to say a big welcome to all three. You could actually say it as one chorus if you guys get off mute. Are you all there? Yeah. Hi there. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> all right. Th- thank you very much. And now we're going to jump the pond and head over to California, where Lindsay Bourne is the director of education for PFCC Partners. That organization helps healthcare organizations and patients and family advisors partner authentically to improve patient care. Now, in 2016, Lindsay was in the hospital for nine days. She was diagnosed with multiple blood clots in the lungs and a blood clot in the leg. She uses this experience, she says, to bring the patient perspective to all efforts at PFCC Partners. So welcome, Lindsay. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Madge. All right, let's get right. We're going to now head over to Amar. We're going to start off with Elft. Amar, in parts of the UK, first of all, patients are referred to as service users. I just want to say that up front, but I, um, I just to get people used to some terminology. Your system in East London has trained over 100, apparently, in improvement, knowledge, and skills. So tell us what and why uh, this effort has come about. Thanks, Amar. Thanks, much. Uh, and so that hasn't happened in isolation. Um, our organization, um, East London Foundation Trust, Um, is a provider of mental health or behavioral health um, and community health and some primary care uh, to a population of about 1.5 million people. Uh, We we over for over a decade now we've seen the value of involving those who use our services in helping us think about how we can improve them Uh, and we started off a decade ago with um, one person representing the voice of all of our patients, carers and family members. Uh, on a, and then we built a, a structure of advisory councils or people participation committees, as we call them, so that every part of our organization had a way to listen to the views of the people who were using services. Um, we then started recognizing that having dedicated people who could reach out to our patients was really valuable in helping reach people and hear their views. So we have built a, a structure of people across every part of our organization who's full-time job is to involve people 
in helping us think about what we're doing well, what we're not doing so well and how we can get better. And it's on the back of that decade of thinking about involving people that five years ago we began our quality improvement journey and we started to use continuous improvement across all areas of our organization to help tackle the most complex quality issues that we face. And over the five years that we've been um, applying quality improvement, we've learned a lot about how best to involve people, not just service users or patients, but staff as well, how best to involve a whole range of people to bring the best of what everyone has to offer to our improvement effort. Uh, we've seen the real value of diversity and bringing a range of people from different backgrounds together. And that includes patients. So now we have over 150 active improvement projects at any time taking place across our organization. And every project from the very start has to think about how would we involve service users in this effort, um, even from the very beginning of what do we need to improve? So that's a joint decision between staff and patients and family members. And as we've gone over through this five-year journey, we've learned a lot from our patients and service users about how best to support them to be involved. So we've recognized that people need access to support and mentoring. So all of our service users who are involved in improvement work have access to that. We've also recognized that um, it's important to be clear about expectations both ways so that the clinical team has a really clear expectation of what they um, want to see from a service user who's participating, but also the patient themselves has clear expectations from the team that's asking them to be involved. So we've got standard role descriptions for patients who are involved in improvement work. We also know that service users need to be reimbursed and, re and rewarded for their time, that they're contributing on a voluntary basis. So just like our staff are paid to work and improve our services, so we also pay our service users and patients for the time they're contributing. And then we did recognize that training had a role to play here because improvement can feel like a foreign language sometimes. Uh, so patients coming into a team that were using language like driver diagrams and process measures and outcome measures um, can sometimes feel like they don't understand what's, what's going on and how best to contribute. So we've, we began by creating a bespoke training option for service users and carers, a half day, uh, very fun uh, way to learn about the basics of the model for improvement and demystify the language through a series of games and exercises. And we've gone on from that now. So patients have gone on from that basic half day offering to now take part in much of our longer, deeper improvement science offerings. And, and we even have a patient who's taken part in our improvement coach program. Um, the key really is to make sure that just training people is not enough. We also have found that of the hundred or so people that we have trained, we need to really focus on making sure they are actively signposted and encouraged to join with projects. Um, and we've also realized that staff and teams, clinical teams, also need a lot of support to know how best to involve patients in their work. Um, it does change the dynamic in a helpful and constructive way, but it also means that staff need to change the way they think and work and talk to each other when we have patients and service users joining the team. And now we have about 40% of our improvement projects involving true co-production, so where the service user um, are completely part of the team from the very inception to the very end and equal partners of the work. And we even have a few examples now where service users are leading 
improvement projects in our teams. So that's a, a little summary of some of our learning and how training um, our service users, patients and family members has played a part in us trying to involve as many people as we can in helping us provide as high quality care as we can to our population. Thank you so Thank much. You so um, I have a lot of questions as I listen to you, and I'm sure everyone else does too. So start thinking about them, uh, and uh, we will turn to questions uh, shortly. Uh, thank you, Amar. All right. And let's now turn to uh, our good friends over at South London and Maudsley Trust in South London. So um, I think they're going to kind of tag team it. Uh, we're going to start with Barbara Gray uh, to tell us what's going on at South London and uh, what's maybe similar or different uh, to ELFT. And uh, then she'll turn it over to Gabriel and then we'll hear from Sarah. Go ahead, Barbara. Hi. Well, to build on what Amar said, um, we only in our second year now of quality improvement um, and from the start, we have involved service users and carers, both with the large trust-wide projects that we've got going on, as well as the individual team projects. And I totally agree with Amar that training service users on its own isn't enough. So we do provide quite a lot of support and coaching for service users, or sometimes they prefer being called patients um, in the quality improvement work that we're doing. And it's been a very humbling experience and it's had um, a very powerful impact on the way that teams work together with service users and carers to really think about what is most important and also how to manage expectations through um, the improvements that people want to make. So I'm going to hand over to Gabriel, who's going to talk a little bit more about the role of the Recovery College <coughs> and um, the particular patient passport work that's been um co-designed and led by service users. Thanks. Okay, Gabriel. Hello. Um, I've been involved with Barbara for about a year now. My role as a head of inclusion has been about supporting our recovery college. Now, the recovery college is, a, is part of the organisation where we run education courses for both service users, staff and family members. So you come into the room as a student. You're not identified as a staff member. You're not identified as a service user or a family member you come as a student. So that training is available to loads of people who are both staff members and patients and service users. You come into the room and you learn about co-production by being taught by people who live and breathe co-production. So for example, the teachers will be a staff member and a service user and or family member who will teach co-production. And so we've been running Recovery College courses around quality improvement. So we're building this sort of cohort of individuals and staff members who understand the principles of quality improvement. And so they can go back to their services and they can think about how to develop small projects because we really like to have this bottom-up approach where people think of ideas, create ideas locally with their service users and co-produce it right from the start so they have an equal partnership. And this is our diver diagram that we created a while ago, which was around you know, understanding the messaging, the data, the resources and the frameworks. So it's all about not just having people in the room to talk about QI, but actually thinking about what processes and procedures. So, for example, we've been working with the QI team around all the documentation. So when you first want to put forward to do a QI project, does it have service user involvement right from the start? 
One of the projects that Barbara said I was going to briefly describe was the idea of developing a patient passport. Now, there were some focus groups run as part of one of the big projects across the trust to say, wouldn't it be good to have a patient passport? So we took a step backwards. We set up a small working party. So right from the start, it was co-produced in equal partnership with staff members and service users. So there's only six of us on this very small team, three service users and three staff members who are going to run and co-facilitate groups to go out and to decide and to think with individuals as to whether this passport is viable or not. We're not making assumptions that, yes, it's a good thing to do from a staff perspective. We really want to engage as many people as possible to work together to say, okay, is this passport something that people would want? Um, and it's been really very, as Barbara said, very powerful because there's so much energy and effort and interest in the room by people having their ideas brought to the table. And then we're going to run, as I said, these focus groups together. Um, and we're just about to start the first one next week. So very exciting. I'm going to hand over to Sarah now to talk a little bit about her experiences of your involvement in the quality improvement project. Thanks. Hi. Hi. I'm oh, sorry. Hi. <laughs> very good. Go ahead, Sarah. Thank you, Gabriel. Oh, I wanted to sort of like carry on from what Gabriel has said, how important it is for service users and carers' voices to be heard. Um, because sort of like I know from my own experience, you can have this brilliant idea for what you think will improve a service, but that's not what is important to the patient and their the carers or people who are supporting them. Um, another reason that I've become hopefully as much involved as possible is that I think you have to be a presence. You've got to have your voice heard. Um, we're all part of the institution. I think central foundation is the, the patient's their carers and also the staff and you work on an equal footing you bring different things to the table but um i think that that's important um i invited through what we have the involvement register um i was invited um, with other colleagues to uh, a meeting way back when when ihi first came to Sam, is that right? Yes, it was their first week. And we were discussing our experiences and what we thought was important, you know, to get our input. So right there at ground level. Um, from there, we were included in these very big workshops, which were a bit challenging for some of us service users and um, carers about the methodology of quality improvement. I mean, for me, it was very helpful, um, I think, to get accustomed to the language. It's a very particular language and sort of like just to sort of like get into it and to un not necessarily to fully understand it, but so it doesn't seem like you're speaking something completely foreign. Mm -hmm. um, I have got a background in healthcare, but I hadn't had the experience of the quality improvement methodology, although I have been involved in 
developing and hopefully improving services. Um, so it was good to have this sort of like framework to work with. Um, from there, there were other big workshops uh, that we uh, identified some of the themes that were important, that we felt were important, and the staff felt important, that needed for, for improvement. Um, and we all broke off into groups, and there was a mixture of staff at all different backgrounds, and obviously the service users and carers had all different backgrounds, and were able to bring their expertise and experiences to the table, and discussed what would we thought were the priorities. I've now been involved with um, one particular project right at the beginning, again, the care process model. Now, I will put my hands up. I was um, not sceptical because I believe in it, um, but I was a bit bemused why it, it was being brought forward and why it wasn't actually being done already. This is a, a multidisciplinary, patient-focused, centred approach to care. Going back to when I was sort of like a doughty young healthcare professional, um, we were trained in this and I wondered how it had got lost along the way. And I was given the opportunity to be able to actually ask this, which I think that is another important aspect of the service user's role in quality improvement is to be able to challenge. And I mean, challenge constructively. I don't mean just for the sake of it. We're all hoping that we will sort of like come to the same outcome in that it will be an improved experience for service users and carers and staff alike. I think, you know, that's very important to remember that. And it's, also, I just finally like to say, as a patient, there have been times when I have felt powerless. This opportunity has really helped sort of like address that and made me feel like I have something to contribute and I am being really listened to as somebody who has sort of like experience, expertise, um, and I have something to bring to the table. So yes, no, it's been a very rewarding experience so far. Thank you so Thank much. You. Uh, and uh, I want to um, really commend you, uh, Sarah, for joining us and sharing that perspective. Uh, super important, I think, to this conversation. Um, I'm just curious, I'm gonna ask you one follow-up before we go to Lindsay. Uh, and talk about, a little bit more about advisory council. You were talking about learning improvement methodology. Uh, I'm, was there any uh, anything about it uh, that some aspect or one of the methods or tools that you especially liked uh, that kind of opened up um, possibilities for your own sense about how things change? Any anything in particular? <laughs> Well, I I like the idea, particularly in my mind, how I've come to sort of like come to understand it. And I might be a bit off piece, but this is Sarah's way of understanding it. 
is that I understand that you have your primary and secondary drivers and then that you have to move from them and that at the end you have your outcomes and I think outcomes I, I get it sort of like there's outcomes and there's experience those are two slightly different things um, and I think what I think that service users and carers want to contribute, I don't want to speak for them, but in my discussions with my colleagues, is a more qualitative, deeper sort of like um, measurement of those outcomes. But I, I like a framework and I, I do think it, you know, it gives a very clear framework. That's great. I think that's wonderful um, that the driver diagram, it, it, which we're showing one right now, and it does uh, from SLAM show um, quite a few uh, issues that are being worked on uh, and uh, the, some of the change ideas to feed the secondary and then the primary drivers. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Sarah. Uh, Gabriel and Barbara, we'll get back to everybody. Um, let me bring Lindsay in now. Uh, Lindsay, um, when you and I spoke uh, on the phone, uh, you were almost kind of envious uh, of uh, what uh, has been possible uh, in these two trusts in particular uh, in the UK, um, sort of a degree of involvement, uh, at least th that we don't quite have, maybe here in the states. Uh, uh, so hopefully we can we're seeding some of those ideas right now. At the same time, uh, PFCC Partners has been doing uh, quite a bit with the mechan one mechanism we have, which are the Patient Family Advisory Councils. So tell us uh, what what you've been up to there. Thank you. Yes, great. Thank you so much, Madge. And yeah, like you said, I've, in talking to um, the folks in London, it's just been really impressive. And I think what impresses me the most is having these service users involved in quality improvement, these quality improvement projects right from the beginning. I think we do a lot of really amazing work here in the United States to um, hear that patient family perspective and their voice, but I think sometimes it comes a little after things are already in process or developed. So that's what impresses me so much about um, the work that's being done in London. Um, so at PFCC Partners, our, I'll start to give you a little bit of information about our organization and then how we have helped supported um, patient family advisors to really uh, develop their skills in quality improvement as well. So PFCC Partners, we are committed to building a community of healthcare providers, administrators, and patients and families all coming together in partnership to improve the quality, safety, experience, and delivery of healthcare. We come to all of our work from that patient family perspective. Um, all three of us <laughs> who represent PFCC partners um, have all been patients, families, and served in the role of patient family advisor um, at one point or another. And I will say that um, as I'm talking, uh, patient family advisor is um, equivalent to service users in London. Um, so we partner with many organizations that you can see at the top of your screen here. Um, 
in our role of an advisor as well. And all of that, it really supports or informs our work in developing programs that support these healthcare organizations and developing patient family-centered care structures or patient family engagement strategies. And also, um, we support patients and families to really move from their experiences that they've had as patients and families into this role of an advisor. Um, one way that we've started doing that, um, that has been developed um, a long time ago, are the core competencies for effective patient family advisors. And these core competencies were developed by, um, by patient family advisors for patient family advisors, and they really build from the bottom up. Um, starting with establishing partnerships, presenting yourself as a partner, um, solution-focused, focusing on what can be done and using strength-based language, constructively collaborative, representative voice, um, having that understanding that as a patient family advisor, you are representing all patients and families served at whatever organization that you are partnering with. And then finally, a teachable spirit, um, being open to learning more and having that understanding that there is so much that you can teach those you're in partnership as well. This is really the basis and kind of fundamental for all of the work for patient family advisors. And we do have a training. It's um, in process right now called the Core Competencies for Effective Partners Training um, that we're able to present to the PFA network, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But that, those core competencies are also the basis for this other training that we have. It's the Quality Improvement Basics for Advisors. We go through six sections, um, organizational culture and process improvement, so having an understanding of kind of where um, healthcare has been and where we're looking for it to go, thinking about culture change within healthcare organizations. We talk about using data and really providing these patients and families real-life examples to help them understand the basics of quality improvement. Um, we relate variation to making cheeseburgers or driving to work and how that can be different every time you order, every time you drive to work. So um, really providing real-life examples for patients and families to be able to understand quality improvement. And that's the one thing that we've heard um, from our evaluations is that's the thing that folks appreciate the most is being able to understand quality improvement in terms of things that they do day to day. Um, we talk about the role of patients and families in quality improvement and how patients and families really truly bring a completely different perspective to this work. And so what we've seen through this training, we've been able to present it um, a few times online, one through um, the quality improvement networks and quality improvement organizations here in the United States. So we open the training for advisors who they are um, beneficiaries or families partnering with quality improvement networks and quality improvement organizations. And what we've truly seen through that, I'm currently in the process of doing an environmental scan of the patient family engagement networks there, um, is that there's been, from what I've seen, a real increase in advisors who are more comfortable and more willing and more excited to participate um, in these quality improvement pro projects from the start. 
And on the other side, these organizations are feeling more comfortable having advisors um, participate from the start of these projects because they have um, this understanding of quality improvement. And so um, it's been quite a success, and we've been able to um, share this um, curriculum with, um, I want to say, about 100 advisors nationwide. And um, really what we've, um, we've opened it to is our PFA network. Um, so that is a network that PFCC Partners supports. It's a network of over 600 advisors nationwide coming together on virtual meetings, an online community, um, and really just working to build their skills and be connected to other engagement opportunities outside of their, um, their organizations that they work for. But um, all of that to say is that applying this context and providing advisors more context the more relevant that their experience is going to be in these partnerships on quality improvement projects. Thank you. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. Uh, a snapshot <laughs> from everyone, snapshots really of uh, amazing work. That's why we chat in a lot of links and hope you'll pursue the resources. I want to say that Elft, SLAM, and PFCC partners have very rich websites full of a lot of videos, uh, the tools that have been referenced, uh, and some of the training. So I invite everyone to take advantage of that. All right, we're going to switch now uh, to Q&A, some of which has already started on um, the chat. And thank you, Amma, for answering uh, a bunch of early questions. Uh, I'll play John's role here and just remind you to please chat in to all participants uh, so everyone uh, can uh, see uh, what your question is and we can all benefit from the answers. Um, I'd like to see, uh, there's a couple things that got thrown out here uh, as, as we tee up more questions. A uh, th couple things came out of here uh, in the remarks at the beginning that I hope everyone really took in. So first of all, uh, Amar, I wanted to jump back to you and Elft and the fact that the focus of the East London uh, Foundation Trust is on mental health. And uh, I'll be the first one to go out on a limb here and say, that people might think that's just the hardest place uh, possibly to start with this kind of thing or the most challenging. So I wonder if you could address that because I think you've probably gotten questions about, uh, you know, the patient population and I'd be curious kind of what issues uh, ha have been very um, uh, important for people to be working on together. Thank you. Thanks, Madge. Uh, and yes, you're right. We we do provide mental health services, um, and that's where we began as an organisation. Um, and so we're focused a lot on recovery, helping people recover. Um, and you know, there's um, a lot that people can gain from being part of quality improvement work. So, it you know, our patients learn skills around presenting, and they build confidence. Um, they learn to interact and build relationships. They, they learn to work with others as part of a team. There are so many um, people who have gained confidence and skills through being involved in quality improvement work that then helps them gain employment later on and, and move on with their life. So actually involving patients 
in quality improvement is a real step for us in supporting their recovery. Uh, and actually, you know, people with mental health difficulties are all around us. So it, it actually isn't um, a real barrier to being involved. Even some of our most unwell patients on our inpatient units are completely involved in partnering with staff in some of our quality improvement work. In fact, uh, if you ask patients on one, or some of our intensive care inpatient units, um, they will tell you what they want us to improve as a service, and they will put in their time to help us with that. Um, and that makes the work much more meaningful. And for staff, uh, you know, the opportunity to really connect with people who are using the service, spend time listening uh, and jointly working towards something that's a shared purpose brings a, a, a lot of joy. And we find that the teams who truly partner um, honestly and openly with their patients are the ones that enjoy this work the most. Um, can you give me an example of uh, maybe, you know, one or two issues where uh, this kind of shared engagement uh, has been very effective? Yeah, I'll give you um, a couple of um, examples. One from our community mental health services, where we have a, a number of teams looking to redesign the way we deliver community care. And those teams started out um, not knowing even how to begin uh, with that but very quickly realized that the only way to do this was in partnership with the patients who they look after. So from starting with one or two patients, um, they have snowballed to now involving a larger number of patients. And actually this has completely disrupted um, the status quo. And that's, that's the point of quality improvement. It forces us to rethink um, from the perspective of those who are using the service about what really adds value what is going to be helpful and what doesn't add value so that those teams that are partnering with patients are now offering a whole range of new services that they'd never considered the staff had never considered and the, the clinical leaders had never considered another example is from our inpatient units where um, we asked our staff and our service users what was the one issue that they really cared about that they wanted us to work on and people said that they were scared they was they felt unsafe and it was because of the high levels of violence in our units. And so that's a, an effort that we have partnered with our patients to try and solve. Um, and part of the intervention is about being more open about it, talking about something that was previously the elephant in the room and jointly working at it, being transparent about the measurements and testing things together as a community. Because ultimately it's staff and patients together who live and work in the same environment. And it's a joint responsibility to make it as safe as we can. Thank you so much. Barbara, can I turn to you um, and ask you, maybe picking up also on that theme of that something that's actually part of recovery and uh, helping uh, patients uh, as, as they proceed with their own lives, this, this experience? Uh, it's quite interesting, actually, because we're also working with patients and staff together to um, improve community services. It's interesting, Amar, listening to what you were saying. Um, and um, we've recently started some work to try and improve the way that care plans are uh, co-produced and used. And we had a very powerful session last week with a team where we had patients and service uh, patients and staff together 
um, where the care coordinators were very concerned that they weren't writing the best care plan um, and where the patients were saying actually that's not what they wanted. What they wanted were the care coordinators to help them produce a care plan that was meaningful for them. And it created some real aha moments for clinical staff in the sense that they felt able to let go and think differently about what they were trying to do um, to help patients in their recovery to stay well in the community. Mm-hmm. And also as part of that process, help them think about the best ways of dealing with crises in the community, which would then prevent um, admission back to hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one example. Okay. Gabriel, can I ask you, um, in the sense about the recovery college where a lot of the training, what degree of rigor are you hoping that patients uh, will, service users will come away with uh, from training? I wasn't even quite sure how long that lasts. I imagine you keep learning as you're participating. Um, but when do you have a, a way to describe what it is that you hope that service users will have learned uh, in this kind of QI space? Yeah, I mean, the actual introduction to QI is a one-day training course with follow-up coaching. Um, And the the thing is is that we've also done some training with the QI facilitators around co-production as well. So the rigour is that they all get the same experience. And we're hoping that in having that experience, then people then go on to be involved in QI projects. The other thing that we're, we've just been um, written some job descriptions and Amar talked about the possibility of people going on to gain employment by being hopeful for them, by giving them people opportunities. And we're just about to um, advertise two posts in the QI team, which will be specifically for service users and carers. So it's a destination for people to gain employment once having learnt the QI skills and um, and, and done the training. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, um, Amar, can you talk about the decision to pay people and uh, how how that has been made feasible? Yes, so this is, we have a long history of, of paying people for involvement. And I guess it's, it's because we value people's time and what they have to bring. Um, and now I guess we're at a point where it's unthinkable for us not to pay people. Um, and to and to make sure that they feel like their time has been rewarded by us. Uh, we do it in a way that doesn't disrupt their um, benefits that they receive. Uh, and most people are, are limited to a certain number of hours that they can do per week. Uh, but uh, it's, it's part of our policy now that if people contribute their time and expertise to help us, that we have a standard uh, form for them to be paid back for that time. And do you, did you have to raise the funds uh, to do this? Uh, was there much uh, bureaucracy to get through uh, to make this possible? Um, so, I mean, there, there may well have been some resistance to this um, many years ago when we first floated the idea, but this has been standard practice for over five or six years now. Um, so, and there's no extra budget for it. So for, for all of our services, part of the way that they need to operate is to involve people and and so within the 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 financial envelope for the service to run um they need to find a way to involve people and and recognize their their commitment to the to the work they're doing okay 
Somebody has asked also, I see now what, what's written on here, this uh, slide here. What does BACS stand for? Uh, it's an online transfer. Ah, okay. All right. That sounds good. Thank you. All right. Um, I hope people will continue to ask questions. We're very curious about how well this uh or much this resonates uh, with what you're doing now and what you might consider doing. Uh, we've, I think we have some examples here of kind of disruptive innovation, uh, and by that meaning kind of in the best sense of uh, pushing on a level of involvement. We do uh, have a question, uh, kind of brass tacks, how many service users per QI project um, and sort of the regular, um, I guess, uh, cadence of uh, involvement. Um, um, who would like to address that? Maybe I'll start with you, uh, Barbara or Gabriel, and I can also ask Amar that too. So it, it depends on the size of the QI projects. Um, so for when individual teams are doing projects on a ward, for example, um, they will ask active patients on the ward if they want to get involved. And our experience is usually that you might have two or three who want to get involved to lead things, and then they will engage with other patients. We've got trust-wide projects where we've had between 12 to 15 people. And I'm going to hand over to Gabriel, who's going to tell you a little bit about the SUCAG as well that we have. Yeah, um, one thing is that so we have a number of service users and carers who are involved in what we call service user groups that are trust-wide right across the organisation. So there'll be people who express interest in being involved in not just quality improvement projects, but involved in the um, clinical governance activity of a particular service, the development of a particular service, so that we have a large number of people with the various groups. So we have a group around older people services, for example, it's a very active group. So when it comes to larger trust-wide projects where we want service user involvement and care involvement, we can go to those large groups and say, is there a cohort of individuals who like, like to be involved? So there's, it's very multi-layered in terms of where we can access service user and care involvement. So that, that's at a trust-wide level. So you get that sort of strategic thinking amongst um, service users and carers. But then also, as Barbara said, on the ward, you might get people who are involved in and experience that day-to-day -day care and they want to contribute to it looking differently for them. So it's quite multi-layered. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Lynn? Maybe Sarah can comment about how she got involved. Yes, I, I she talked about kind of uh, some bit of re recruitment. Um, were you uh, on your own in some of your first uh, experiences, uh, Sarah? Did you have others with you who were? Uh, no, we had, had others with us. Um, with me, sorry. Yeah. And I, as Gabrielle has said, um, I, I sort of like picked up on on through various sources, sort of like I'm a member of what's called the Involvement Register. Um, and that advertises, if you like, opportunities that you might be interested in. Um, those tend to be sort of like more of the trust wide type things but then through the advisory groups where we have excellent sort of like PPI leads who sort of like run the advisory groups and um, they sort of like hear about things and ask us whether we would like to be involved and they sort of like 
act as a conduit for getting us involved in various projects, workshops. And it's what's, and in, from my personal point of view, it, it's what interests me. You know, I'm in control. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. So um, it's what, so that like I alluded to um, earlier, I'm particularly interested in this whole idea of the care process model. Mm -hmm. And so, but there are other things that really I have no sort of like expertise in through experience at all. And I don't, therefore, I'll be honest, have so much interest in. So, you know, you're in control of your own, what you do yourself. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Amar, do you want to comment on sort of, you know, average number of people who might be service users who may be part of a project? And uh, there is an additional question. Uh, somebody is asking whether or not uh, things have come up uh, from the service user perspective having to do with medication, uh, prescription types of things that people might have wanted to work on. Yeah, so much um, in involvement is a big uh, topic. So I, I just encourage people to think about involvement, not just in the isolated way of individuals being part of a project team, but it, just like any team would want to make sure that the whole clinical service is involved in some way in the work of improvement. Um, I think there's uh, no upper limit on how many service users can potentially be involved and the more the merrier. Now, uh, there will need to be a smaller project team that's meeting regularly, that's driving the work. And, and so I, I, my only suggestion would be that one person is probably going to find it difficult on their own. So we always suggest a minimum of two and not likely to be three or more per project to really make sure that people feel supported and not isolated in a project team. And yes, people sometimes come up with um, their own individual issues around medication or aspects of their clinical care. But, uh, it, you know, people are very skilled as clinicians and teams at helping people think about what the purpose of the work being about the service and, and aspects of the service quality that people think could be improved. Okay, thank you. Lindsay, I want to come back to you. And um, as you're listening to this, uh, uh, not to put you on the spot, but where do you maybe seem, see some connectors? Um, I'm just trying to think about the richness of what PFCC Partners is also doing. And then we are, of course, hearing a lot about co-production uh, and collaboration uh, of, on a greater scale um, in, in the States and in North America. Um, as uh, partly because I suspect a lot of organizations and people with us today and anyone listening uh, to the podcast is going to try to think about, well, what would be our next step? If we were to take what we're doing now in our organization, where might we push next uh, or test something next uh, that would take it to another level? That's a really good question, and I think so here in the United States, I think patient family advisory councils are much more common than having um, patient family advisors or that voice and perspective on 
quality improvement initiatives and teams um, or even safety committees or quality committees. And so I would say that next step is to um, work with the patients and families that you're already working with um, or partnering with and um, try to match their needs to what, not their needs, I'm sorry, but their interests to specific aspects of where your organization is looking to improve that are tied intrinsically to the strategic goals of your organization. Um, and what I was, I was kind of listening in on the conversation around how many um, service users are on these quality improvement projects and um, I completely agree with both Amar and um, Gabrielle and that um, you don't want the advisors or patients and families to feel isolated. And so at PFCC Partners, we always recommend sending advisors in teams of two so they do feel supported and um, always following up with them as well after their experiences on these projects to make sure that they had everything that they needed and understood what was going on. But for those organizations who are already partnering with patients and families, taking that next step and involving them um, from the beginning in a really collaborative way on um, quality improvement, um, process improvement projects, I would say is that next step. If you're not doing that, then um, get started <laughs> in finding some patients and families who have been served at your organization to partner with um, in really authentic ways. And there are so many amazing resources out there that can help support you and your organization in doing that. That sounds great. All right, uh, let's make a quick mention of something, and then we'll uh, get some uh, nice uh, kind of wrapping up comments from everybody. All right, yeah, yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, so we talked a lot today about giving patients and their families the right QI tools to improve their own care, but, but sometimes going to the hospital is still necessary, uh, and that can often mean the ED. Um, healthcare professionals uh, know that overcrowding in the ED can contribute to poor care, frustrated patients, increased horror, cost, and potential harm, and stress for both uh, patients and staff. And that's why IHI is proud to invite you to the Perfecting Emergency Department Operations, a seminar that's being held this June here in Boston at the IHI offices. Uh, this seminar will provide healthcare professionals with the opportunity to learn how to optimize ED flow, operations, and service, and will demonstrate why an efficient emergency department is so critical to the safety and satisfaction of patients, their families, and, and hospital staff. Perfecting Emergency Department Operations will be held right here at the IHI offices in Boston, June 11 through 12, and for more information, visit IHI.org slash ED operations. Thank you, John. Okay. Let me go around the horn here, and um, I'll start with Amar, and then we'll uh, head over to South London, and then Lindsay again. Just some final uh, uh, remarks, and feel free to also point us to anything new uh, that may be on the horizon. Amar. So I guess um, I would say that some of the really complex challenges that we face uh, in healthcare today aren't going to be solved by the same level of thinking um, and that the only real way we're going to be able to improve health outcomes, improve experience of care and improve value for money is going to be by partnering with those we serve um, and we just need to get a deeper and deeper level of partnership with our communities and citizens even, not just patients but citizens around how to redesign healthcare for the future. 
Thank you, Amr, and uh, really thank you because definitely you were the prompt to all the work going on uh, at ELF that led me uh, even to talking to people here at IHI uh, to find out more, and that got me to uh, South London as well and to Lindsay. So I really appreciate it and look forward to learning more. All right, Barbara and team, maybe one one person can kind of just uh, speak for the, the three of you just for wrapping up right now. It's been such a pleasure to have all of you. Uh, all your insights. Uh, so building on what Amar has said, I think that um, it's a big culture change. And what we've learned um, is that people want to work together um, to think through um, how we best deliver and improve services now and in the future. And it's um, a very humbling and very rich experience of working together and I think that makes the learning um, more sustainable. Thank you. So and I think it's yeah, really, really helpful having people like Sarah in the room because it makes such a big difference. And tonight it's reminded me of why I do this work. Well, I um, want to thank Barbara and uh, Gabriel and Sarah uh, all for the willingness. And just to remind everybody, it is evening in London. And so we are also uh, very appreciative of uh, the time that you gave uh, us today and uh, really grateful and hope to keep learning from you as well. All right, uh, Lindsay, uh, anything kind of coming on the horizon? I get some great emails from PFCC partners about all kinds of things. Anything we should be uh, on the lookout for? Yeah, we have some really exciting things going on constantly at PFCC Partners. For anyone who wants to stay connected, you can find more information on www.pfccpartners.com or send me an email right there and I can get you connected. We do have a really great um, free workshop coming up next Friday where we will be talking about how you can work with your patient family advisors or patient family advisory councils to improve um, uh, your organization in many different ways using a new model, the OKR model that we're using for um, patient family advisory councils. So um, again, you can join that and find more information by heading to pfccpartners.com. And if there are any patient family advisors or service users on, we would love to see you um, be part of the PFA network. And you can do that by heading to www.pfanetwork.org. And I just want to thank everybody and thank you, Madge, for having PFCC Partners on. Appreciate it. Well, we are very grateful to you and for all the learning. And we do invite you. You've got email addresses for all our panelists uh, today. They are more than happy to dialogue with you and do check out all the websites to see what's happening. All right. A big thank you to our audience, uh, our guests. Uh, next up on WIHI uh, on June 7th, uh, we'll be talking about pathways to population health. And I uh, hope you'll take a look uh, at that information as well. That's going live uh, on the website, IHI.org, at the conclusion of today's program. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we use from our discussion today, and do be on the lookout for the archive page with all the elements, including the audio, on IHI.org by tomorrow, and also you can find us on iTunes. Subscribe, and it will just come to you automatically. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. 
great group of people helped make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, and Val Weber. I want to give a special thanks to Angela Zambo and Olivia Butkowski for all their help with the show. I couldn't have done it without you guys. It's my privilege to host this program that continues to be about spirited learning and improving health and patient care. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.